Hello and welcome to another episode of Econ with Phantom. This week we have a special guest with us. I was volunteering at this uh, conference, the Africa FinTech Summit, and I took interest. I wanted to find out more about it and who better to answer a few questions of mine than the lead organizer of the event, Mr. Andrew Bard. Welcome, sir. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on uh, your esteemed podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for um, accepting my request to be interviewed. So, like I said, recently I volunteered at the Africa FinTech Summit and the first thing that I noticed was the plethora of officials that were present. One of the most prominent of which was Dr. Denny Kalialia, who gave a profound interest arousing speech, inviting people to inviting people to invest in Zambia while at the same time setting boundaries for engagement. Do you believe that the growth of the fintech sector in Africa is so resounding that the big players in the traditional financial sector don't have a choice but to align themselves? Or be, or be outdated, or perhaps they still have a slew of options to explore? Yes, I, I agree with you. The traditional players in Africa's fintech space need to accept financial technology. This was a conversation that was kind of a, it was a big piece in our industry, probably you know, five, six years ago. Nowadays, we're starting to see the traditional players, you know, such as banks, financial service institutions, microfinance institutions as well, starting to embrace financial technology. I believe that it plays an extremely crucial role in driving certain aspects of development. What I mean by this is specifically two things. Specifically, first of all, and primarily, what I would say as sustainable economic development. And the second would be financial inclusion. You cannot have one without the other. Uh, in terms of financial inclusion, you have to make sure that this is beneficial to the people you are, as per se, financially including. You have to make sure that the people who are using your product are getting a benefit out of using it. If they do not get a benefit, they are not going to continue to use it. And then in terms of sustainable economic development, you know, more efficient business more efficient transactions, all of that plays a role in building a more efficient economic system. And so I think these play a big role in Dr. Denny, uh, Honorable Felix Mutati, and others, you know, at the recent Africa FinTech Summit in Lusaka really kind of spoke about this and really brought it to light, uh, specifically in the Zambian ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to touch on when Dr. Felix Muntati mentioned how it's important for these big upcoming players in the fintech sector, how important it is for them to integrate in the societies that they wish to 
grow in. And on a similar wavelength, um, the follow-up question to this would be, like, how important is the adoption of these technologies to societies like ones in Zambia or, for example, Kenya, where you are? Because sometimes, you know, um, the adoption cannot be so streamlined. It can be difficult at times because of the reluctance of people to adapt to change. So how do you navigate that and ensure that people can embrace the change just to come and show them that there's benefit? Because people can be stuck in these old belief systems where yeah. they think that changing things might cause problems because they feel so comfortable in the state that they are. So how do you navigate that? So you can take you can answer this question from a variety of different perspectives. Mm. Let's start by approaching this question from the perspective of a bank or being a corporate kind of fintech. You have to approach it in the point of building trust and building, mm. you know, the relationship with your viewers. Now, earlier in your question, you had mentioned Kenya specifically. I am based here in Nairobi, Kenya. I, I join you from Nairobi, Kenya virtually today. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's been a bit of a rainy day, but you know how it is. <laughs> but, um, you know, the example of Kenya, it's, it's really hard to compare. And what I mean by that is the likes of M-Pesa the world's first mobile money system was in fact invented in Kenya. It was invented by Safaricom. And so in 2007, they rolled out M-Pesa. They rolled it out before the iPhone, before, you know, smartphones really became a thing. Um, wow. And it was, you know, simply a USSD kind of SMS payments system. Now, M-Pesa has had over 10 years, uh, 15 years, in fact, 15, 16 years to build the trust of consumers. Um, building trust, it is much, it takes a long time to build trust, but it takes a very short time to destroy trust. Um, That's true. You know, yeah, it's very true. Um, and so I think that is the point where many fintechs lie currently is have we been around long enough to build the trust of our customers? You know, and I, I understand this as, you know, say you are making maybe, and I'll put this in the US dollar equivalent uh, just to make it a little easier. But say you make $3 a day, okay? You make three US dollars a day. I think that comes out to, uh, what, maybe 70 kwacha or so. You know, where does the risk lie? If you make 70 kwacha a day, but putting your money into a digital system where you're risking you know, on average, maybe five, six kwacha, you know, mm. and, and also, I guess, taking into account fees, that's a really hard sell. You know what I mean? 
You know, how do you convince someone to potentially waste five or six kwacha a day on a system? So, you know, at at the core of it, it involves building trust. And I've worked with many fintech startups across the continent. And, you know, many of them take different approaches. In Kenya, for example, you do not have to build the same trust that you have to do, say, in Nigeria or Ghana or Congo. Because in Kenya, we've had these systems for many years. But if they're very new to people, you have to explain it to them. And then it goes a step beyond that as well. You know, what is the role of the regulator? And what I mean by that uh, in the Zambia context would be the Bank of Zambia. What is the role of the Bank of Zambia in protecting the money or the assets of the Zambian who is putting their money into these technological systems? So the Bank of Zambia, of course, you know, has a very kind of stern position on this. They are very structured, more so than regulators in, say, DRC or Mali uh, and such. But, you know, making sure that your end user is protected. If their money, you know, is defrauded or stolen, what is their recourse? How do they work to get that back? Additionally, how do they know that the company they're working with is approved, essentially? And that is the prelude to the the licensing process. Is the company mm. that I'm working with licensed? You know, that's and I feel that goes down to the I'm sorry to cut you short, but I feel it goes down to the aspect of building security in these structured systems. So you find the businesses that start up, they cannot just begin because they need to be vetted. They need to go through a structured process so that trust can inherently be given to them because they are backed by some form of entity. And I get that. At the summit, I heard um, Dr. Mutati mention how these new startups will have to pour in money and be more interested and invested in ensuring that there's a wider understanding of their of what they have to offer on the market amongst the people. And you're aware that there's um, around 2 billion people on the African continent and a significant portion of these people lack access to internet. So critics might argue um, in the quest for pushing for advancement, in the quest for pushing towards um, licenses, for example, you might forget that you first have to begin at the grassroots level to help the individual understand what you're offering. So then this presents a problem for a a very small startup because you find that they have to navigate between using the resources that they have to apply for the licenses and and at the same time using the resources that they have to educate their their consumer based. So... In what way, if possible, can a small startup ensure that 
they're not constrained on one area. They have somewhat of a balance, if you understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's that's a bit of a tough question because it really depends upon the company and the type of founders you have on your team. You know, in regards to building public trust and almost educating your consumers, that is extremely time-consuming. You know, if every week you, you know, I guess let's take a step back. Say you run a startup based in Lusaka and you have six employees, including yourself, okay? If you're doing business in the Copper Belt, you know, you have to travel there say the way that you decide to engage your customers is by hosting local kind of seminars or educational sessions with your potential consumers you know you have to travel out to the copper belt you have to organize this little event you know you have to get people you have to make sure people are there you know you have to make sure that they get value out of attending the event and so forth. So there, there's a lot of different ways that startups can engage. And many of them, many startups kind of revolve around this. I would call it grassroots, focusing on going directly to the consumer and educating them. I know on one of my recent trips, uh, to Lusaka. I think this was August or early September this year. Um, I was at uh, Levi Mall going by ShopRite to pick up some stuff. Uh, and I noticed there is a um, there is a booth for a company called Yellow Card. Now Yellow Card yeah. does cryptocurrency. Uh, you can purchase cryptocurrency, you can sell cryptocurrency, and then you can also use it uh, as a means of payment. Um, and it's run by a friend of mine named Chris Maurice. Uh, he's also an American, like myself. <laughs> but, um, yeah. you know, they took that grassroots thing. You know, they were sitting there in the mall, talking with people, educating them. But... You know, if you're looking for an answer from me that's, you know, what is the best way to educate and engage with consumers? There's, there really is not a single way to do that. I, I believe wholeheartedly that trust takes a very long time to build. And there are a lot of different ways you can build it. But in terms of how you engage with your potential customer is everything. You know, if you're meeting them in your home, in their hometown, you know, helping explain to them, you have a person that they can always go to to help get answers. Of course, that company is going to build more trust than, say, a company that never engages with its people outside of Lusaka. You know what I mean? And I completely understand. And to sort of take you back to Yellow Card, um, at my university, the University of Zambia, um, you notice a lot of these, well, 
the most prominent of which um, yellow card, engaging with students, educating them, running them through these processes so that they can understand how, how to trade and how to educate their peers. And I completely understand it begins from the grassroots level, but then at the same time, there is no right formula. You can still get it wrong, but you just have to go for it. And yeah. it's, it's, it's very different depending on which country you're in. You know, I keep yeah. using Kenya for this example. You know, I, I would argue the, the Kenyan populace, you know, the average Kenyan is much easier to convince to use financial technology systems because they are used to it. Or they have, mm -hmm. this has been a part of their life. I mean, M-Pesa, here in Kenya, yeah. you have mm -hmm. probably 98, 97% of the population has access to M-Pesa. That is absolutely massive. There's not yeah, a, a single country mm -hmm. in the world where mobile money penetration is that high. And so, you know, given that people are used to that, it's a lot easier to convince them. The same is the, the same is true in the United States. You know, the, the country I'm from, you know, my family for, for many years, probably at least 15 years, 10 years, they have had an app. They have had a mobile app for their bank on their phone. And so there are individuals who go about life never having gone to their physical bank for years. They trust the system more so than, you know, someone who is used to going to an agent or a branch regularly. So, you know, at, at the end of the day, it, it I feel like I'm repeating myself, but at the end of the day, it always comes back down to trust. You know, if you come with the mentality of, I don't care about regulation, I'm going to do what I want to do, yeah, you're yeah. not going to go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the government yeah. is going to come for you. <laughs> yeah, and Dr. Kalyalo made that very clear in his speech. Um, he was very subtle about it, but I feel everyone got the memo. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's one of those kind of things where, you know, and I guess this goes kind of into my personal belief a little bit, but in the financial technology sector, you absolutely need regulation. I think if you asked me 10 years ago, do governments and central banks need to regulate things i would be on the free market side of things i would be like ah let the let the you know let the people let the businesses do what they're once they'll figure it out but having <laughs> you know having you know several years of experience and working in this sector i understand more so than i used to the importance of regulation because you know, some of these companies, and I'm not saying all of them, it's probably less than 5%, less than 5% of fintechs in Africa. If there was no regulation, they would 
absolutely just destroy their consumer for personal gain um which is not a good or positive or enlightening thing to say but that's reality and so there's a very important aspect of regulation that comes about when it comes to this uh, and I think the Bank of Zambia is being a leader on the continent in this regard. I would also um, specifically advocate uh, the Central Bank of Egypt as well. They have done a lot to be proactive in working with entrepreneurs who come to them and say, hey, I have a product, I have a service that mm -hmm. doesn't fall under any of your current regulation what can we do together and you know what the central bank of zambia and the central bank of egypt have done they have established what's called regulatory sandboxes and regulatory sandboxes are designed for companies products and services that do not fall behind current regulation. And so, you know, in some countries, this may be crypto. In other, in other countries, this could be a Rosca saving model um, and such, where there is no current regulation for what you're doing, but the central bank allows you to test it in a controlled environment and, you know, as an entrepreneur, you learn from that experience and the regulator learns from that experience. The regulator learns, hey, maybe we need to enact, you know, some regulations along this side of things to make sure that, you know, these companies don't get too crazy, <laughs> you know, and so, yeah, those companies so don't get crazy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you know when there's when there's a lot of money involved, things mm. can get really crazy. Uh, yeah, so I want to take you back to now the Africa FinTech Summit, the summit as a whole. So over the past number of years, uh, the summit has, the summit has made a number of headlines. You know, from um, holding extraordinary conferences, um, spawning these amazing companies i mean i saw the likes of yellow card and a number of other companies that stemmed from you guys's um cooperation and my question is how do you as a summit and obviously as a lead organizer how do you identify a suitable partner in this sector because as fast as it's growing um africa fintech um on the continent is the fastest growing sector anywhere yes. in the world. And that calls for celebration, but then at the same time, it calls for caution because they might rise up people who are, you know, criminals, people who want to deceive. So as a summit, how do you identify a suitable partner to work with? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, you know, for what we do from just the summit perspective, that a lot 
comes down to kind of more of a financial commitment um, on the partner. But in terms of what we do in regards to regulatory affairs, um, you know, strategic introductions and such, those are much more specifically decided partners. You know, we want to make sure that we're not working with someone who is engaging in, you know, for example, terrorist finance. That would be horrible. That would, I would not be able to sleep if we did that. <laughs> um, I would feel extremely bad uh, in that regard. So for our internal process, yes, we definitely you know, do a little bit of due diligence on these partners and so forth. But, you know, one of, one of the programs we enacted in the first year we were operating is called the Alpha Expo. And you were at the summit. I'm sure you saw some of our Alpha Expo participants there. Um, this program has been you know, since day one designed to give value to early stage startups who, per se, could not afford to participate in events such as the Africa FinTech Summit. I mean, you know, in regards to an exhibition booth, you know, not just at our event, but at many of the people who attempt to do events like ours. I, I say attempt because you know I'm. I like to be. Uh, no, you guys are. No, you guys are the veterans of the game. You've been but, doing this for ten years now. Am I right? <laughs> it's been a while, but uh, yeah. You know, we want to make sure that you know these companies that may not be able to afford to participate in events are able to, and so for our Alpha Expo this year, we took on board. 15. We took on 15 startups, uh, seven of which were from Zambia, eight were from outside of Zambia um, in other African countries. Uh, we took them on board into our cohort and, you know, we gave them free exhibition, the opportunity to pitch on stage. You get to attend the summit, the VIP dinner, all of these different things you know and it's kind of one of those things that's like hey we'll we'll help you as much as possible but we're not holding yeah. your hand you know you also have to take <laughs> initiative i'm not going to introduce you to every single person you need you know but this is the room you need to be in exactly you know this is the room you need to be in take advantage of it so uh, that's one of the many different things we've been doing over the years. But I, I think that answers your question. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, it, it does. It does. And it leads up to something that I, I also wanted to ask. Um, so at the conference, when I was doing my articles, I noticed a number of companies, you know, um, they had um, booths, they were advertising. And yes. there were companies from like the likes of Chipper, which seeks to give um, customers access to stocks to MyTalu, which seeks to revolutionize how money is moved and how people think about money across the board. And 
you know, what value can be derived from embracing this? And I, I understand that you've already touched on this earlier, but I want you to hit it from the aspect of the Africa FinTech Summit and what it aims to do on the African continent. So do you think that um, the potential of this sector amongst individuals in Africa, like every ordinary Jim and Jack in Africa, do you think they underestimate the potential of this sector? And if they do, how can we begin to change mindsets and show people that if you do not align, you will remain in the past and that will be very sad. Yeah, I mean, you can take this from either the corporate or the consumer point of view. I think it's better to answer from the corporate side of things because we've discussed, okay. you know, the trust building of the consumer side extensively yeah. already. But I, I think personally, financial technology will play a huge role. And that's one of the reasons why in Zambia, our theme was fintech in every industry. Financial yes. technology is what I would consider a almost an infrastructure rail, okay? And what I mean by this is as simple as things as roads, telecommunications, access to internet, access to the financial system. That's what fintech plays, a role in access to an exponential financial system. And so, you know, in terms of building fintech and building financial technology rails, you can bring more individuals and more partners on, on board. But in terms of getting more people involved, I'm going to be honest, I've, I've played the role of salesman as well for, for fintech <laughs> companies and it's not a fun job. It's very challenging. Um, you know, if you have someone who for their entire life, they have saved money under their mattress, convincing, <laughs> convincing them that, you know, this digital bank, you know, even something like ABSA, a very prominent bank, you know, using that digital system with ABSA, that's quite challenging. It's, it's very challenging because, you know, overcoming the concept of physical money, you know, in the fintech industry, you cannot physically with your hands feel your money. But if you have cash, you can sit there and you can feel your money. So I think, I think that's a very strategic thing that a lot of companies such as Chipper, Maitalu, and others are working mm -hmm. to solve. You know, yeah. I said it takes many years to build trust with the consumer base. And that's where we are right now. Right now, in Africa's fintech industry, we're in a trust-building phase. And I guess this is the best phase to begin the conversations, to begin having these somewhat... Um, intrusive conversations with our elders, telling them that after all, their money is not safe under their mattresses. <laughs> yes, yes. 
considering the past 10 years that the summit has existed, you guys have done commendable and tremendous work in the fintech sector, and it's highly impressive. So what do you have in store for the African continent? Uh, where do you see the fintech sector in, or should I say, in and around all African countries like Kenya and Zambia in the next decade? And how do you see yourselves positioned in the next 10 years? Do you see yourselves as a major player in the fintech sector or will you take sort of a, a back seat if you like? Well, I, I've never been one to take a back seat in anything. <laughs> personally <laughs> but um you know the fintech sector on the continent uh there's this concept of what is called leapfrogging and uh -huh. leap leapfrogging is the process of a single economy or multiple economies jumping steps in the innovation process Okay, so yeah. say instead of, you know, going from written letters to telegraph to physical phone to, you know, a more digitized phone, you can go from writing letters to a digital phone. That's kind of what the concept of leapfrogging means. And... We as the Africa Fintech Summit believe that financial technology gives many Africans the opportunity to leapfrog those, I guess you could call intermittent innovations. And, you know, financial technology can do a lot in a lot of different industries. Something that I have been extremely interested in this year has been the plight of artisanal miners in Katanga and, you know, the Kifu region of the DRC. You know, these individuals are physically digging for cobalt and such that go into my iPhone, that go into everyone's iPads, you know, their, their laptops and so forth. Um, I've been extremely interested in this specific use case. And I have been doing a lot of research and thinking around what can financial technology do to improve the lives of artisanal miners? And this is not just including the mining industry. This includes the transportation and shipping industry. This includes, you know, everything from MSME, uh, agricultural industry, and so forth. Um, but how can financial technology bring enhanced efficiency to these 
what you could call fairly traditional sectors. Um, and I think we're beginning to see this in some countries, you know, uh, in Zambia, you know, in recent history, the organization that runs uh, the toll booths in Zambia has recently introduced uh, kind of electronic toll payments, you know, yeah. something as simple, something as simple as, hey, you don't have to stop to pay a toll, as opposed to 10 years ago when going through a toll in customs booth was going to take 10 hours, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it simply comes down to efficiency. Uh, and that's one of the the beautiful things, and that's why I love the field of economic theory and economic thinking, is that, yeah. you know, much of it revolves around this concept of efficiency. What is the value of someone's time? What is the value of, you know, their input to the economic system? and so forth. And so I think financial technology plays an infrastructural role in global industry. And I think fintech in particular, in Africa specifically, mm. gives the option to leapfrog other intermediate innovations and, and that could that could mean in the next 15 years doing business in africa becomes more efficient than doing business in canada the u.s europe china you know and so forth um and i think this will become you know, extremely special. Uh, but, you know, I'm not really in a position to talk for the entire sector. But my personal belief is that financial technology is an infrastructural rail that plays a role in every single industry. So I can't help but feel, um, after all we've talked about, there might be someone out there who might feel threatened by new, who might feel threatened by advancements. Think about it this way. Um, the new modes of payment for road tax, I mean, um, toll fees, using an electronic card. What the, what does that do? It removes uh, the person The opportunity that for corruption. <laughs> yes, it does remove the opportunity for corruption, but in the quest for more efficiency, in the quest for more advancements, how do we ensure that the people who are already in those roles don't become obsolete and don't be don't become rendered useless and and del delinquent because they can't because they because there's no room for them basically. So in the quest for efficiency, how do you balance that? 
Yes. Uh, this is a tough question. And I would use the example of Twiga Foods in Kenya. So there was a company a few years ago that came about called Twiga Food. And they work with smallholder farmers and uh, vendors directly for fruits and veg in Kenya. And one of the things that they didn't realize when they first started doing work was that they put a ton of middlemen out of business immediately. You know, old school kind of middlemen. Hey, I'll come with my truck to your farm. I'll pick up your stuff. I'll take it to a market. You know, I'll give you money. Um, I think, and I th I do honestly believe financial technology does threaten a bit of that what you could call middleman industries. Um, the way to solve this, I am not a great person to ask about how do you solve that? Uh, because, you know, personally, and I'm not talking from the FinTech uh, Summit perspective, but me personally, okay. you know, it comes down to even you as a person has to innovate your processes. You have to change what you do. Take, for example, there was an issue in the early 1900s in, in New York City specifically, and this happened in London as well, where they were concerned by the amount of horse manure on the roads. They said, we do not have enough people to shovel horse manure off the road. Well, give it 10, 15 years from when people were asking those questions, there were no longer anyone, there was no longer anyone shoveling horse manure off the roads because it was all cars at that point. Yeah. <laughs> so it's also a question of, I don't personally believe it's the fintech industry's responsibility to make mm. sure that all of those middlemen have continuing positions. Um, and I, I, I know of people who would argue with me for hours on this topic. <laughs> but, you know, me personally, and I, I come largely from a more free market Austrian field of economics where <laughs> you know it's the much more thinking is uh, you know innovate or die essentially uh, yeah. you know that's kind of a harsh way to put it but you know eventually at some point you have to change what you do in order to survive and continue doing what you do um, yeah so I think it's a fine line. I think there is a fine line of companies working with individuals who may be threatened by what these companies do. Hey, how can we use your expertise or how can we make you an employee? How can we work together to further a cause as opposed to, you know, how, 
fighting each other, essentially. And that's, you know, I mentioned earlier, Twiga Foods in Kenya. They came into an issue when they first came into the market where these middlemen were were like stealing their shipments, you know, wow. and taking their vehicles and such. Uh, and I, I understand that point. You know, if you threaten someone's lifestyle, someone's livelihood, I almost feel that they have a right to to fight for what there is theirs. Really? <laughs> but, you know, how, how do these two parties come together and work together yeah. for yeah. The, the cause, for a cause together? And I think that's the hard part. You know, in this world, this world is so decisive, man. Uh, I told you earlier, I'm an American. I'm an expert at decisive you know, two part <laughs> two party systems, and you yeah, know, yeah. half of America hates the other half of America. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, yeah um, absolutely. But how do we bring people together to solve a common issue? And the hard part with fintech is it comes down to the issue is not necessarily the same. What? Mm the company is solving oftentimes is much bigger than what the individual or the middleman is trying to solve. You know, the middleman is just trying to feed his family and make sure that, you know, say he works in agency banking. So he's, he's the bank agent for his village for uh, Zanico, mm. you know, but if Zanico introduces a system that puts him out of business, he doesn't want to, you know, do that because then he's going to have to find something else or innovate, change, and so forth. Uh, I don't know. It's a, it's then again, quite when, a when complicated at, uh, situation, man. It's a complicated yeah, it, situation. Well, I'll admit it, it is a complicated situation, but... When you look at it from a Darwinian perspective, when you look at the theory of, of natural selection, it's evolved or become obsolete. So it's it's part and parcel of each and every individual to embrace change and to adapt so you can survive. Because we're currently in a stage where we've just advanced from rocks and using... Uh, sticks to make fire into a place where we use gas we use vehicles to move around and we use steel for our axes so we've just moved up a notch but the in instinctive nature of man to adapt to change is still part of us what's just happened is that people are unwilling to embrace change because of their uncomfortable their uncomfortability to move forward they are so comfortable in their states. But then again, you know, this comfortability of individuals, it might be the death of some, unfortunately. Yes. Uh, I agree with you. You know, I've been fortunate in my position to meet some absolutely amazing innovators, you know, some people who, you know, can call themselves billionaires and so forth, like U.S. dollar billionaires, not quattro wow. billionaires. 
that's trillions in kwacha <laughs> yeah but uh, that's trillions. you know you know one of the things that i've noticed about some of these people is that yeah they don't really care you know if something threatens their position they're just like mm-hmm. well then i guess i need to think of something new or i guess i need wow. to change my approach you know they're very what i could call flexible human beings and i think that's on our generation and we're we're both in the same generation you know it is on our generation in a space where technology is changing extremely fast i mean you know i'm sitting here tonight with an iphone uh, 15 you know it's very nice i like it a lot but uh you know imagine 15 years ago 15 years ago what do you have you have the first generation iphone you know and such uh one of the things they say commonly is uh the current the current smartphone in the world has more technology in it than the apollo missions had when the united states originally went to the moon wow that's, that's crazy you know yeah. and so it is on our generation to be flexible and it is on our generation to be the ones who say i don't think that is going to continue forever and i mean yeah you know i've i've been in the industry you know i haven't been in the industry 20 30 years that's i'm not that old <laughs> but uh you know even in the short time i've been in the industry things have changed quite quickly you know just a few years ago when we talked about fintech we were simply talking about payments digital banking and remittances you know what we're talking talking about nowadays we're talking about insurance technology we're talking about investment technology we're talking about blockchain all of these things that didn't exist a few years ago so when it comes down to it the 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 strongest people the strongest people in life and in anything will be those who are flexible yeah that's true and we're headed towards uh, end unfortunately <laughs> it's been a really um interesting interview i've learned a number of things myself but i wanted you to give like closing remarks so like picture you are speaking to the west you're speaking to countries in asia uh and towards new zealand and australia and I don't know but I have a nagging feeling they are oblivious to what's going on on the African continent. Some of them at least. So yeah. What would you tell them if you had the opportunity? What would you tell them about how the Africa fin- the, the fintech sector in Africa rather is coming up and well <laughs> if they should be prepared. <laughs> I I mean you know i'm from the united states i guess you could call me a westerner um <laughs> but 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 my message to the west would remain the same you know it is simply take 
Africa seriously. Stop. Stop looking at Africa as this poor continent. Stop looking at Africa as needing aid, you know, for everything. Africa doesn't necessarily need aid. Africa needs business. And that's the point that I see, you know, whereas it's like, let's emphasize the point of business and less of aid. Um, you know, we need to be working together. And I honestly believe, you know, Africa, uh, give it 50 years, it's going to be the most populous continent in the world. And then, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, the way, the way some cultures give birth, it's very quick. You know, us Americans <laughs> we have one, two children and we're done, you know, but you look uh, like you look at, you know, some cultures like Ethiopia, it's uh, like, Eight children is not <laughs> enough for them, so oh, they went and multiplied. <laughs> you know, so uh, it's it, it's it really comes down to a thing of one Africa is the richest continent, and yeah. the West unfortunately realized this when mm. Belgium was in charge of the Congo. They did realize this. Um yeah. You know, and they still capitalize upon that. And so if my if I had to give a single message to the West, to my home country, mm. even the United States, I would say, mm. take Africa seriously. Mm. They Africa should be business partners, not, you know, just another country you're trying to just not just another continent you're trying to overtake it should not be like that you know but i think we're at a turning point i think in recent years we have hit a turning point and i believe countries are beginning to realize this and i believe specifically the likes of china Japan and others have realized this even before the United States, the UK, Germany, Belgium, and so forth. You know, they've come to realize ah, Africa should be a trade partner. It should not just be, you know, in the way of shipping routes. <laughs> that's, that's not a good way to put it, but in reality, that's how some of these people look at it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. unfortunately, that's the position we find ourselves in. But, you know, I I, mm. I dedicate my life to, you know, advocating for the African continent uh, and so forth. And that's where I continue to find myself today. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining me on, on this episode. <laughs> it's been a pleasure having you here, man. Well, thank you so much for having me, man. This is a this is a good time, you know. I I could go on for another four hours, but I think your yeah, your listeners would be bored. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they would. <laughs> thank you so much, man. Take care. All right. Cheers. <laughs>